Jamie, thanks for joining us on the Dev Ready Podcast. Jamie's from Mogul. He's a Chief Product Officer. Um, wanted to get him in really to talk about what it's like developing a product within a startup framework and environment. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers, mate. Um, tell us a bit about who you are, what your background is, and how you originally got involved in technology. My, I guess my, my career path, the trajectory looks a little bit odd maybe at first glance, but okay. the overriding theme is, is generally emerging technology and emerging mm-hmm. industry and thinking yes. about what's next. But uh, let's start at the beginning, I suppose. Um, look, as a young kid, just really loved video games. Uh, yeah. Only child, uh, was always lonely. And so <laughs> multiplayer games were sort of always high on my priority list. Yeah. Um, that led me to the world of PCs. Uh, uh-huh. this, this brand new thing called the internet was taking off. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just desperate to get online and, and yeah. play multiplayer games. So I talked my parents into buying me my first computer. Pentium 233. For sale. Yeah, that's right. Uh, 32 megs of video RAM. You know, it was pretty flash at the time. Um, and, you know, well, of course, I told them I needed it for school, right? I needed it for, to, <laughs> yeah, for research. But, but really, yeah. I just wanted to play Quake and, and yeah. uh, you know, Command and Conquer. Yeah, nice. Um, so I started building PCs. Um, and I, I was just fascinated with the opportunity of, of getting content online and it being available to the world basically immediately, right? Yes. The, the, the democratization of, of, of information mm-hmm. dissemination, like the, the next printing press, that sort mm-hmm. of leap. And that was really exciting. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, I didn't think about it in those terms back then. I didn't have the vocabulary, but, but yes. fundamentally, intrinsically, that was, that was what, what excited me. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started teaching myself how to write HTML. Yep. I was using a Microsoft front page actually as a, as a WYSIWYG and then reverse engineering it and looking at what code it was spitting out to understand <laughs> how it was generating what, yep. what I was building. Very nice. um, you know, a little bit of PHP and a little bit of Java and a little bit of CSS and mm-hmm. some CGI scripting and, and this sort of stuff. Um, and then I decided that, you know, obviously I need to try and make these things a bit prettier as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I taught myself how to use Corel Draw and then it was PaintShop Pro and eventually Photoshop. And, you know, now there are a dozen better design tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's was that was sort of the beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. I, I started freelancing. I started, um, you know, doing some design work and some uh, some web builds for, for small businesses mm-hmm. uh, around the Territory and South Australia. Um, uh, but gaming was still sort of, you know, at the, at the heart of everything. I mean, part of the reason that I, that I did that was to create a presence for my clan. You know, I'd started a Quake okay. World team yep. and I wanted to represent the first them. website. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, first website yeah, was yeah. actually a clan website. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I ended up doing some design work for uh, EA Games and Microsoft Games and working on mm-hmm. Telstra Game Arena, which was formerly Wireplay and their COGS application. And so yes, yes, yes. all a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a long time freelancing. Got a good break as a creative director at uh, Tats Group, which mm-hmm. is you know New South Wales Lotteries, Tats Lotteries, those guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that turned into a, a head of user experience role. Mm-hmm. Um, moved on um, later in my career to the AFL as head of user experience there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then really sort of got back into, into startup land rather than working for big businesses. I guess mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost a throwback to my time as a freelancer uh, managing distributed teams, you know, where mm-hmm. I would sort of okay. wrangle up a bunch of designers and developers to work on a project with me. Yep. But now very, very product focused as opposed to services focused. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, was one of these startups which I co-founded uh-huh. and we were working on a transit application similar to CityMapper mm-hmm. and underpinning that application was some novel technology which I'd, uh, which I'd um, submitted a, a patent for which was um, in essence the opportunity for someone with a mobile phone 
to be able to engage with an out-of-home screen, a digital out-of-home screen, mm -hmm. D-O-O-H as the industry sort of acronym goes, uh, but without needing to pair, without needing um, basically any friction. Uh, and we accomplished this with a novel, a novel arrangement of, of uh, proximity-based beacons, Bluetooth beacons, okay. mm -hmm. um, and creating mm -hmm. um, a, a link between the two so that the device would figure out uh, which screen it's next to, and mm -hmm. it would make some, some calls to a server to understand what content was currently playing on that screen, and then it would be able to service content related to whatever's on that screen. Get it. Uh, so actually actually pretty simple when, when, mm. you, when you water it down, mm -hmm. um, but uh, pr a pretty big deal for the industry, mm. uh, and that technology has gone on to, uh, to see a lot of acclaim. Um, after Contact Light, um, the next major project was Horizon State, which yes. you're familiar with, which was mm -hmm. the world's first um, blockchain voting solution using distributed ledger technology mm -hmm. to create a, a perfectly secure, auditable, transparent, uh, safe and cheap record mm -hmm. of a vote, which has a lot of tremendous uh, knock-on effects, positive knock-on effects for not only uh, you know our national budget, you know, being able to run, for example, the the, the same sex marriage plebiscite for you know a million bucks instead of 120 million bucks that's a big difference in numbers isn't it <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> uh, but also uh, you know really important mm -hmm. knock-on effects for uh, developing nations and those where sometimes it's not so safe to go to a, a place of polling right mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's violence um, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of corruption and so this provided the opportunity for us to, to move the needle there as well by mm -hmm. making it safer and keeping people accountable mm -hmm. um, and look re really probably more proud of, of um, that piece of work than anything I've worked on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's these light bulb moments throughout life, and I've had some mm -hmm. great ideas and worked on some of these great ideas. But that, for me, is is probably the most special uh, because it meant the most. It's the it's the most profound. It had the greatest opportunity for yeah. for impact for change. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, look, as you mentioned, currently uh, at Mogul, which mm -hmm. is uh, Australia's first uh, listed esports business, uh, we build basically infrastructure to support the uh, you know rapidly growing esports competitive landscape. Basically, tools for for tournament creation. Yeah, okay. Nice. Okay. Uh, online prizing, this sort of stuff, which is which is really fun. You know, back to my gaming gaming roots again. It's amazing how much of your early story lines up with mine. Mm. I even went into the games programming at uni, and then we started our startup, which we've been doing since then. But it was very similar: into games, learning front page, yep. HTML, Coral, Draw, three D, then Photoshop. Nice. Yeah, very basic <laughs> understanding to get you through. Mm. But yeah, it's amazing how they then and then it just diverges separately. You've had multiple startups and different levels of success along the way. Yeah, I mean, look, as we were discussing earlier offline, you know, startup. I, I love startup life. Um, the flexibility, the control. Um, you know, more often than not, it's the opportunity to work on passion projects with people that are just super motivated. You yep. know, really intelligent, passionate, hardworking people who share the vision. And you know, sometimes that's hard to find in, in big corporate environments. Mm -hmm. And even when you do find those sort of people in big corporate environments, there's usually a lot of bureaucracy and red tape which slow things down. So you know, early stage businesses um, thinking about technology, emerging technology, helping devise new solutions, create uh, better solutions to old problems. These, you know, this is this is what I find fun, but mm -hmm. um, of course there's a lot of risk involved, uh, both yeah. from a capital perspective, uh, from a job security perspective. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of these startups just don't work. Um, the attrition rate is high because not every idea can succeed. Yeah. And you sort of touch upon, so you went from tech like building tech to UI, what was that decision and why did you go into that more UX user experience side? What, what drew you to that? When I was building those those websites in mm. the early days, um, it became very apparent that it didn't 
so matter much how good I was at building something if mm. I was building the wrong thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly I, I, I became fascinated um, with behavioral psychology and trying mm -hmm. to understand why what I built was, was resonating or mm -hmm. working mm -hmm. uh, or not. Okay. And, you know, that's, that's more a design problem than anything mm -hmm. else. Uh, you know, the, the, the technical implementation, how you go about executing, yep. um, you know, that can be achieved masterfully for both good and bad solutions. And yes, so I, I really wanted to focus on, first mm -hmm. and foremost, the, the right solutions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that really led me down the path of design thinking and user yeah. experience. It's good that you had that realization very early. Yes. It took a us while. a while to get there <laughs> as well. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how good you build it. Having that, yeah. if you build it, people will come mentality doesn't get you anywhere that's right yeah so the behavioral science side dive into a little bit on that so what have you found over your journey around what works what doesn't so what are some things that people can think about look i think um lowest common denominator is mm -hmm. is unfortunately very important it's yes. about you know first and foremost trying to establish a, a very rich understanding of your audience mm -hmm. um, you know if you're building product without you know going to market and trying to understand your target market or well, mm -hmm. first establishing truly what that is otherwise mm -hmm. product market fits going to be really really hard yeah. mm -hmm. but once you have making sure you're doing uh, appropriate amounts of research mm -hmm. um, things you know things as simple as surveying but yep Generally, in product and digital product, mm -hmm. um, sentiment can be misleading. Opinions can be misleading. The most valuable sort of uh, trials and tests you can run um, about, you know, understanding uh, the preference and behavior of, of your potential target market mm -hmm. is things like usability testing, yes. um, mm -hmm. where really what you're doing is understanding behavior. You're looking for what they do, not, um, not what they say they do, really. That's what it comes down to. And I think, yeah, you've touched on that. So yeah, we can run up with a survey and basically ask a few questions, but that doesn't then generally mean they're going to use your application at all. Mm -hmm. The challenge you have when you're in a startup world to get to usability testing, that can mean some significant investment. Mm. So where do you see drawing the line from that? How far do you take it to get to usability? Do you need a full-fledged product? Where do you see the first testing starts? Look, there's, there's some, some really simple, mm. low-fi, cost-effective stuff yep. you can do, which is still just better than asking people their opinion. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, as simple as paper prototyping, literally yeah. scrabbling, mm -hmm. scribbling down some, some UI on paper mm -hmm. and rocking up to your local coffee shop and asking people mm. um, whether they'd basically take this quick test with you mm -hmm. um, in exchange for a free cup of coffee. You know, it's going to yeah. cost you three bucks. It's going to take mm -hmm. them two minutes yeah. you really um, want to basically pretend that they're using a real product but they're yes. not uh, and as simple as yeah. if you wanted to update your account details mm -hmm. across these three scribbles which buttons would you click on you know it's a crude example yes um, but it's uh, absolutely practical and it helps a lot yeah because yeah. yeah, you have to get away from people telling you what you want to hear Oh, and then right. yeah, surveying a group of people that are all very similar that will provide similar answers as yep. well. Yep, uh, com confirmation bias and and that willingness to have your your own passion mm -hmm. and belief uh, reinforced mm -hmm. is uh, is an easy is an easy trip, especially uh, in startup make. startups are found as well. Yeah, yeah, people. Yep just discard the opinions of other people who don't agree with them mm. and then like if these people have said it's going to work so we'll go down that path and ignore the others Look, because I, they believe in it and, and it's tough you know because um most founders um will get criticism for their for, for, for their ideas about those ideas in more than one forum usually mm -hmm. when they're seeking investment you know there's just a lot of no's mm -hmm. uh, it takes a, a certain degree of intuition, maybe something which can't really be trained or taught, um, mm. to understand what advice to be taking, what criticism to be accepting, what praise to be accepting, and, and yes. what not to. There's, there's just, I think there's just a, a matter of judgment there, mm. which is, you know, 
it's not really something where you can say this is how you make better decisions about feedback. Um, mm. So it's, it's a tough one to answer, but but certainly people need to remain, I think, uh, as, as conscious mm-hmm. um, and um, as accepting and as open-minded um, about the, the potential for feedback and, and just thinking really critically about what feedback they're accepting, what feedback they're paying attention mm-hmm. to. Because because sometimes, you know, you, you go against the grain and you get yeah. nothing but no's and criticism mm-hmm. and it turns out to be a tremendously good idea. And yeah. Airbnb is a fascinating example of, uh, example of this, which is, you know, heralded as the worst idea that ever worked because <laughs> they, they really struggled and nobody yeah. thought it was nobody thought it was practical. Nobody thought it would ever be entertained, mm-hmm. um, you know, by, by a, a consumerist capitalist population. Like, why would I have a stranger stay in my spare room? Yeah, yeah. get it. Um, but, you know, it's all just part of that broader sort of... Of kind of sharing economy in a way mm-hmm. which is which has emerged and it's it's really exciting and and those sorts of ideas they actually go on to to change culture they change you know the human condition and the fabric of society yeah. I, a lot of people talk about um, how we're becoming a little bit more antisocial i actually see the exact opposite i think anecdotally you can pretend we're becoming more antisocial but mm-hmm. we're now happy to get into cars with strangers uber uh, yeah think about that you yeah know, it has changed so it's strangers i think it was that sharers. way I think you think back 100 years ago, people probably, they would say they're more social and connected and willing to talk to a stranger. And I think that changed and shifted, but it seems to be coming back that way now, which is great for everybody. Yeah, just in yeah. that time, a stranger was the guy you saw down the street. Correct. Now it's yeah. anywhere in the world. Yeah. So we yeah. are more connected, but... Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, be, being a gamer, spending a lot of time mm-hmm. online... Uh, mm. I, I've made some of my, my best friends, lifelong friends, um, yeah. people who I now see IRL you yeah. know, quite yeah. often. Um, but yeah. you know that, that indeed copped a lot of criticism, criticism for a long time and still mm-hmm. does. But because we are so connected, we are the most social that, yeah. that any uh, generation has ever been. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a different kind of socializing, right? Yeah, but that's definitely. also not a bad thing. I think people are just kind of resistant to change mm-hmm. in that give us 50 to 100 years and mm-hmm. you know we won't need to be having this conversation verbally. We'll be exchanging ideas via thought. And that's just a different kind of communication. <laughs> Right? Yeah, that's yeah, a different true. take on it because a lot of people just talk about we're not as social as we once were, but how social were we really? I think people just, I think we assume as things change, we don't really associate to the past and we say, okay, we used to make phone calls, we used to go for coffee, mm. we used to do this, that, but how often did we really do that? I think it's easy to say that was better than it is now and I think we get a little bit lost in that. Mm. So it's an interesting take because a lot of people just say, yes, we aren't as social, but yeah, yeah when you look at it, yeah, it's a different way. They're very similar, just the terms yeah. have changed. The coffee yes. and the talk is now Netflix <laughs> and chill. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 100%. That'd be very cool. So let's jump a little bit into, obviously you were in corporate world, so mm. um, let's not go too far there, but let's go jump into the, the, the startup. So Horizon State's clearly one that um, we we know a little bit about. Let's talk a little bit about how that sort of evolved, how you got involved in the Horizon State and how you took what you knew from a corporate world into a startup, which really, I don't think, from what I know, it wasn't your concept. You came into that project. How did you see that? So, look, my experience mm-hmm. at Tats Group yeah. um, was, was priceless. I mean, we were at Tats Group, we were kind of building out mm-hmm. a startup within a very large institution, and that gave us yep. that gave us some, some flexibility and some liberty, which um, a okay. typical startup wouldn't be afforded. But, mm-hmm. you know, as an example, we were a separate entity uh, so far as, you know, yes. business registration is concerned. We were a subsidiary of TATS working within the walls of TATS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we were given permission to move fast, at least early on, mm-hmm. um, and build out a big team with kind of like an unlimited budget. You know, we mm-hmm. were drawing on the profits from the large business. Yes. Yep. 
while trying to do things such as you know deliver the the, the company's first mobile app. It was two thousand and nine uh-huh. when I when I started working for Tats, and mm-hmm. the iPhone had been around a couple of years, and mm-hmm. it was time to start thinking about it. Um, so a lot of learnings there in terms of team building, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, deploying emerging technologies to, mm-hmm. to markets that aren't necessarily that savvy mm-hmm. uh, in respect to that technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that yeah, look in a nutshell, that that was massively beneficial. And so moving on to future opportunities, uh, using that as ammunition, it, yes. it really helped me create the best possible starts for, for some of these small businesses, mm-hmm. um, which obviously had far more limited budgets. But on the topic of Horizon State specifically, um, I joined a not-for-profit uh, democratic movement called MyVote, mm-hmm. spelled M-I-V-O-T-E. And the premise of MyVote was that um, rather than you know waiting for an election um, every few years and then voting for a, a, um, a package of policies, or unfortunately, as most of the populace does, they vote for personalities uh, mm-hmm. or parties rather than even the package of policies. And we, we wanted to try and think about ways to enable um, any constituency to have their voice heard in a more frequent manner, mm-hmm. um, voting on you know perhaps a per-policy basis where they had the interest or the knowledge um, to actually learn up and have their say and influence that outcome mm-hmm. in between election cycles. Um, when I joined, there wasn't really any concept for how this would be delivered, but it was clear that it needed to be internet-based um, because mm. standing up, you know, polling stations every week or every month or every few months was just completely, you know, an untenable idea, and just yep. too cost effective, too cost ineffective, yep. um, and just not very efficient. Mm-hmm. It was around the same time that I'd been um, dabbling in in Ethereum. I missed the Bitcoin wave, but I'd I'd been reading a lot about Ethereum and and, Mm -hmm. um, had been uh, subsequently reading a lot about distributed ledger technology. Yes, Mm -hmm. and it seemed to me that this could be uh, potentially a very very good application um, for digital voting. In that, you know, if you think about if you think about a Bitcoin, and Mm -hmm. if I'm to transact with you and 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 send you part of a Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. well, there are there's a confidence that that transaction is um, immutable, it's irreversible, um, it's perfectly transparent and audible. It's it's basically all of the things that would make a fantastic vote, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and based on the, the technology that all this is built upon, um, it's yet to be compromised. And mm-hmm. I think the only the only real risk in regards to it being compromised um, is quantum. But of course, you know. Everything is potentially everything, compromised. Yeah, that, that, that changes everything. Um, mm. And of course, you know, people see, oh, this exchange has been hacked, or someone lost some Bitcoin. And but, mm. but fundamentally, what we're seeing um, is uh, the erosion of centralized services in terms of you know their security practices and processes. We're seeing mm-hmm. we're seeing centralized services being compromised, not the blockchain Correct. itself, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of how it all began. Um, mm-hmm. Um, we lent on some third-party help and got a prototype sort of built out within just a few months, mm-hmm. and uh, the, it was it was a proof of concept that that worked. And mm-hmm. so we were, you know, we were pretty chuffed that the idea um, had legs. Uh, mm-hmm. It was proven viable. Yes. And we spun out the technology um, into a business called Horizon State, whose intention was to take it global and to commercialize it. And you know, uh, ended up working with um, small councils in New Zealand and, and South Australia, and had great conversations with national governments, uh, mm-hmm. Gibraltar and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, nice. Travelled the world yeah. in a very short amount of time during that sort of crypto uh-huh. blockchain boom, but it was it was yep. all very exciting. And yeah, as I said, very proud of that work because mm-hmm. um, A, the precedent that we set, we sort of really started this, this idea that maybe um, online voting can begin to happen 
in places outside of Estonia, which is more or less the only place in the world doing it right now. Um, I didn't know that fact, but yeah, really you would. So we, um, yeah, I feel like I feel yeah. like remarkable to be a part of something um, mm. that important, that special. Why do you think Estonia is the only one doing online voting right now? Well, because I mean, look, inherently it's insecure, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's digital voting on mm-hmm. machines um, mm-hmm. or whether it's online voting. Uh, the the infrastructure which which underpins that communication mm-hmm. just isn't up to task. It doesn't provide the the, the right degree of, of confidence that um, we aren't going to make it easier for people to manipulate outcomes. Uh, where blockchain changes that. In terms of the blockchain, how did like it's you're obviously trying to make a massive change here. So you're going into talking to governments around taking voting one online and then two bringing this whole new technology and educating them around blockchain how did you find that approach being a startup trying to make this massive change because we're not talking about a startup that's trying to make a little impact here one that's trying to deliver significant change across the globe and the way we perceive how we vote and how we actually do run democracy and using a technology that most people think is a fad or a bubble and yeah not real have a real use look uh immensely challenging Uh, is, the, mm-hmm. is the short answer. Um, look, I, I think I- in many ways, mm-hmm. you know, we were, well, we were the first, we were leading edge with this idea. So, you know, the the common phrase um, about timing is everything in, in startup land. Yeah. Look, mm-hmm. arguably, I, I think when I started that journey four or five years ago, mm-hmm. it was too early. Um, and that was reflected in many conversations. I mean, look, government moves really slow Does, by default. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you take really slow moving institutions mm-hmm. um, and you want to push them into innovation with technology, which is either not understood whatsoever yet, mm-hmm. or maybe doesn't have um, the appropriate amount of uh, testing and DD completed from their perspective, yes. mm-hmm. thinking about you know their risk, what they take on by adopting certain new technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking through the behavior change for the constituency, you know, mm-hmm. there was a whole lot of factors there which are just... Um, Real tough, like they're, they're things that which, which you know, you're talking about uh, a journey which probably needs to take decades rather than just a few years yep. before it becomes well and truly a reality in Get all it. of the places you want it to. So, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that this kind of technology will be used precisely for those purposes, but mm-hmm. we won't see, you know, large national elections using it probably still for another five to ten years. I'd say. Okay, so it could be even more potentially. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an interesting conversation. So. And I think it alludes to the fact of if you're a non-tech looking to build some technology, understand what challenges you might have in the market, you're trying to make an impact like you were, I think, um, yeah, understanding what the regulation is, what the type of people you're dealing with is, and understanding the industry. Mm. How did you go about that? Was the thinking just the tech's that great and the idea's that great, we'll be able to do this? What was the initial thinking behind it? Well, look, I go into all of these ideas mm-hmm. understanding that... Um, they might just fall over. They might not mm-hmm. work, right? It could be the greatest idea. Mm. Uh, the technology could be the best. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just doesn't work. You know, timing is yeah. probably the biggest factor there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's Mark Andreessen, uh, inventor, well, creator of, of Netflix, who f- famously said that every idea that failed during the dot-com boom and bust yes. would now work. Um, you know, yeah, okay. it, it's, yep. it's always a matter of timing. And mm-hmm. so I, I go into these, into these projects understanding that... Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and and take a stab at something which I obviously believe is viable and, mm-hmm. and we can we can make this fly. It can succeed. Yes. But you've you've got to go in um, also appreciative that it might just not work. Mm-hmm. And so, look, I mean, in respect to uh, you know co-founders who, who are non-technical, I think um, you're right. 
It's actually, it's usually a benefit um, rather than a detriment, but you've got to make mm-hmm. sure that um, you're putting your best foot forward and, and doing the best possible job at, at communicating and educating mm-hmm. and, and handholding. Um, sometimes this can be a little bit frustrating, um, mm-hmm. uh, but more often than not, they bring essential skills to the table, which, which a, a technical fo- co-founder or even a user experience yes. a design co-founder might not. So mm-hmm. those complementary skills are, are really critical. I, I generally have a rule of thumb that, thumb that in, in most startups, um, you want a gun designer, a gun developer slash programmer. Mm-hmm. You need uh, basically a, a gun sort of BD. Yes, um, someone that you can talk to talk. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. Those 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 are really the th- three essential things. You need the guys mm-hmm. that can that can build the thing, and you need the guy that can take it to market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very very quickly after that, you'll start mm-hmm. to look at what is very specifically you know marketing muscle and, and this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. right? But even in the early days, depending on what the model is and what the product is, you don't mm-hmm. necessarily need that sort of CMO uh, type figure to get going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, look, in terms of practical, actual experience, my current role at Mogul as, as Chief Product Officer is, is working with uh, another three uh, very successful, uh, very intelligent individuals. One of them actually comes um, from a financial services background and, okay. and made a fortune playing online poker. Um, That's an interesting we background. Have, yeah. <laughs> we have, um, we yeah. have another person from, from uh, media and sports. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got another person from the world of games publishing. So very much in the video mm-hmm. games industry, but not necessarily uh, involved in, in esports, despite mm-hmm. having launched some of the world's biggest esports titles. But it's it's a, it's a great mix of knowledge, yes. um, mm-hmm. and that and that's important. So I'm happy to be able to bring to the table first-hand experience, being sort of semi-pro. I, I played for Australia's best Counter-Strike team once upon a time. Okay, okay. Um, awesome. But also having that that sort of technical leadership background mm-hmm. and and hands-on user experience uh, mm-hmm. design. You know, it's it's complementary, and I think that's that's an essential part of of seeing success in any startup. Because if if you're missing um, a great developer yes. or you're missing that great designer mm-hmm. well then the, the product is basically compromised mm. and if you don't have somebody who can talk the talk walk mm-hmm. the walk take it to market mm-hmm. do the deals basically yes. or, or think about go to market strategy and think about marketing in the right way mm-hmm. um, you know again it's it's the comment you made earlier you mm. you can't just build it and expect people will come mm-hmm. there's more to it mm-hmm. um, Peter Thiel um, obviously famous investor in Facebook uh, he he doesn't even necessarily believe strongly in the you need to be 10x better than your competitors to succeed. He's a, he's a big believer in build a great product um, and then take it to market stronger, market it better. Um, market it better than your competition. Pretty right? much, you know. Yeah. Like in essence, and it sounds crude, and this is only, you know, I guess I'm, I'm taking his perspective slightly out of context, but mm-hmm. if you can spend more on marketing than your competitors um, and you have otherwise, you know, a, pr- a pretty even product, yes. then then you're going to win. Mm. Yep. It yeah, all comes f- down to marketing dollars and how well you build your brand in the end because I think people get a little bit lost on let's just build the tech and yeah, like Happens I said, hopefully, hopefully they come. Yeah. Um, but in reality, there are more than likely, if you're building technology, I was on a conversation with um, a guy that supports SaaS products, and he said there's minimum nine, ten SaaS products within a competing market of yours. So what's your point of difference? Mm-hmm. In reality, from a feature and function set, you're going to have some similarities mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. across that. Your difference is how you market it and how you service that product. Yep. Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting conversation around what do you do differently, I think a yeah, marketing brand is still pivotal and then how you niche your market as well in terms of who you're communicating to. Correct. I mean, you just yeah. can't understate mm-hmm. the importance of, of how you take the product to market. Yes. I mean, 
in any business, of course, you're going to be striving for, for 10x improvements over mm -hmm. the status quo. Of course, you're going to be yeah. looking for features that differentiate and give you uh, an edge in the market yeah. against your competitors. Obviously, mm -hmm. you'll do those mm -hmm. things. But even those things unto themselves, um, even if those are reasons for, for long-term success, if you mm -hmm. want to pour you know, fire, if you want to pour accelerant on that fire and, yeah. and really get it going quicker, well, then you still need to think about uh, money spent, how you spend it in terms of marketing, and also you know, which markets. Um, Mogul has a few uh, high-quality competitors. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, there's a couple. There's a couple solid uh, pieces of technology businesses that are up and running and doing well. And so for us, you know, obviously we we've got some really exciting stuff which is about to drop, which will give us an industry lead. Mm -hmm. um, but we aren't expecting that that industry lead all of a sudden makes us the industry leader, right? Mm -hmm. We we oh. have to think about where we take that technology into which mm -hmm. markets at what time, how much we're we spending. You know, this is this is all really essential stuff because having the best tech uh, more often than not isn't enough alone. Yeah, and we're sort of finding that with our retail product that we have, our other startup. It's very similar to the competition that's out there. We came late onto the market compared to them, but the message that we have and the extra services such as the support that seem to be making the difference and resonating with the users more. Yes, but, yeah. Sometimes not just about the tech at all. So I think um, I think you touched on it there. You're going to have now, but it's about timing too then. So if you're building and launching some new tech that's going to be different and differentiate you, that's not going to last forever either. Correct. Um, unless you've got some real um, patterns behind that and they mm. can't touch it. But in reality, you can shift and twist a few things and all of a sudden you get something very Correct. similar. Correct. Um, so then you need to have the marketing budget and the capital to actually push that out, especially if you're playing a big game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How um, So Mogul, what are the plans for Mogul? How big is the team right now? What are you looking to do? How have you brought the team together? What does it all look like? Look, the business the business has been around mm -hmm. for, for a few years now. Okay. The product's been up and running yep. for about a year and a half or two years. Okay. I've been with the business for about a year. So mm -hmm. I was brought on around this time last year yep. um, to really rethink parts of the product mm -hmm. um, and also help rethink some of uh, the strategy for commercialization mm -hmm. um, and, and how we take this product to market for what purpose for which audience okay. um, it wasn't um, it wasn't immediately um, apparent to me what the right decisions would be and it's part of the reason that I love being involved in startup as a full-timer committed to the brand committed to the idea committed mm -hmm. to the product because as a consultant um, which I've spent some time in mind you um, you're going out to businesses um, and in a very condensed amount of time, somehow you need to figure out the entire business and all of its nuance and then make yes. the right decisions for the future of the business, which is way harder than anybody actually ever acknowledges. Yeah, mm -hmm. correct. And I think more often than not, consultants yeah. are making uh, ultimately what are, um, let's just call them uh, less than optimal mm -hmm. um, you know, decisions for the business based on, based on that, that toughness mm -hmm. of time. Um, so you know, the, the first few months at Mogul was, was learning a lot while also starting to plan out what things might look like from a product perspective okay. um, and what our priorities are from, from a feature set and from, uh, from an acquisition strategy perspective. Mm -hmm. Now those things um, are finally in full swing. Um, yes. We've got a really, really exciting roadmap ahead of us with uh, a world first and industry first piece of tech, mm -hmm. uh, which is indeed a patentable opportunity, which I'm, which I'm super hyped about. We'll get yeah, to talk good. about that mm. more over the next uh, few weeks to month. Mm -hmm. um, but in essence, yeah, well, I mean, look, in, in a nutshell, we're looking to be the world's best from a technology perspective. Mm -hmm. But right now, there's an incredible focus also put on um, which markets we're entering and when and how. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, thinking about the competitive landscape where, you know, purposely 
um, avoiding some of the markets where our competitors are strong um, and looking at some of the markets which they're not. So for us right now, South America and Southeast Asia mm -hmm. and India mm -hmm. are all enormous uh, growth opportunities yeah, because they're underserved in terms of this infrastructure. Um, and, and we're already there. We have you know thriving communities playing mm -hmm. on our platform, um, creating events. You know, hundreds of people rolling through the door for for matches, and mm -hmm. um, you know that's. So that's that's going to be a key focus for us moving uh, into the rest of 2020. That was a good point you made there. So if you are in a market that's obviously you've got competition, um, I think you've touched upon it, finding a market they're not serving well enough or something you can niche into. And you've obviously got a, a location-based sort of target there in terms of um, countries and a particular continents you're targeting. But yeah, from uh, if you're a non-tech, you can focus on a niche. It could be an industry that's not getting served mm. well with a particular type of product. That's so right. it's a valid point in terms of how you actually build your strategy behind it. So with the strategy, um, you obviously come from a more a UX horizon state. You probably looked at more learning around how you roll out a product and especially understanding the landscape. What do you look at when you're diving into the strategy and how to market a product? And what's important? Do you, what do you believe is important in that area? Yeah, I mean, I guess at its core, mm -hmm. these are still kind of, in a way, all, mm -hmm. all, um, all user experience questions, right? They're design mm -hmm. questions um, in that thinking about the markets we're leading into, um, and it's already been revealed th through some actual usability testing, is that expectations uh, are yeah. different market to market. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think localization and experience adaptation based on those locales mm -hmm. is often something that's overlooked. Um, there's a massive marketplace um, in Japan, which kinds of, just most recently, it's gone against what I'm about to say in some ways, but Rakuten um, used to have uh, not only um, localization in terms of language, being able to visit it as a Westerner and seeing it in English versus being a local um, in Japan and seeing it in Japanese, but the, the entire experience <clears throat> would shift uh, in pretty significant and stark ways. Japanese site looked like a busy newspaper, and the Western site like a beautiful Apple advertisement. Yeah, interesting. And this this is this is yeah. quite smart uh, mm. in the sense that you have to do different things in different markets to establish credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Japanese prefer things typically that are that are information dense. Yes. Um, they like to be educated and believe that they have all, have all the right information before making a, a purchase decision, as yeah, an yeah, example. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. you know the West tends to be a, a little bit more enamored by bright and shiny objects and, mm -hmm. and one word slogans and these kinds of things. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. and, and so I, I think that's probably most often the most overlooked aspect yes. um, to, to pushing product into various new territories. Mm -hmm. And ideally, um, you'll create some kind of universality because otherwise the, the, the burden and the debt builds up way too fast in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, basically having six different products for six, yeah. six different markets. But it's challenging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. To manage that. But I think if you can if you can think beyond just language, mm -hmm. um, create universal universality to the best of your ability. But mm -hmm. if there's an opportunity to, to make changes um, or, um, you know, create points of difference for different markets, mm -hmm. where the research, research suggests you should, um, the rewards for that are usually quite great. Okay, well, that's an interesting take because a lot of people can yeah, build a product and put it out into many markets and leave it exactly as is. And you'll find you might hit with one market and not others. And I think that goes with any sort of communication. We want to know who our customer is. Mm. We want to know what their 
attuned to buying, what their interests are and what sort of needs they have. And you said the, the Japanese site's got a lot more content and more like a newspaper. They like a lot of content-rich stuff and probably some more rich imagery, yeah. I imagine, on that side as well. It's so, a cultural thing yeah. you have to understand, yeah. not just be able to have a translatable, yeah. which is it's, what it's all well and good to, most people think of. Yeah, that, that's right. It's, it's all well and good to say, well, look, my, mm. my product's digital. You know, mm -hmm. we distribute it over the internet. Okay. So it's, it's just global immediately, which is, yes. which is true, right? But it, it's, it's true in the crudest sense um, in that without appropriate localization, language is a baseline. Mm. Um, but going beyond that and thinking about what actual patterns might need to change, yes. how might the feature set differ to cater for, for local interests uh, mm -hmm. and local expectations? You know, that stuff can be massively valuable. In some cases, it's just not that important in that mm -hmm. we're just going to make it available globally but really our target markets are x y and z anyway yeah get mm -hmm. it. um but you know if if there's if there's a business interest in a certain region it, it pays to go mm -hmm. and do that legwork to do the research yeah it's very mm -hmm. smart so and the same would be per industry and per user type as well That's so right. you've obviously got different users and personas that use your application and they're all going to have different journeys and different um requirements really so we have to consider all that through the design of the product mm -hmm. so when you're designing your products are you Pretty much, how do you do that? Do you work on your own, doing your research, bring it back to brainstorming with team? How do you make decisions? What do you do there? Uh, look, the, I mean, the starting point for me is mm -hmm. just a, an endless stream of thought. I um, Look, I've always... Endless stream of thought, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I, I never really stop thinking about the problems that I'm trying to solve. So, okay. I mean, look, for me, um, I've, I've found that my greatest ideas um, usually happen sitting on the couch in the evening staring through the TV because there's some junk on or, or standing in the shower. And so yeah. I, I've never thought about work and life as something that needs to be balanced. For me, they're mm -hmm. just kind of one and the same. I, I, I'm a technolog yes. technologist at heart. I, I love what I do. I love building mm -hmm. technology. I love thinking mm -hmm. about the future. I love thinking about uh, technology and emerging industry and emerging tech. Um, so f for me, the start of the process is a little bit nebulous and then it's hard mm -hmm. to define, but I guess I just have an overactive mind and, and I, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this stuff a lot. From there, the start of the process is generally in isolation. Um, mm -hmm. I like to try and throw some things down onto paper, either quite literally scribbling them down or, or just jumping straight into a tool such as Sketch and, and trying to visualize some of my ideas. So get it out of your head, basically. Get it out of my mm -hmm. head, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really the, 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 the part of the process where um, some real robust research starts mm -hmm. to begin, either competitor research or market analysis or starting some of those uh, lo-fi sort of usability testing methods, which I talked about earlier. Yeah, you know, yeah. As soon as you've got mm -hmm. anything, test it with somebody, yep. ask them what they think about them, uh, mm -hmm. you know, try and try and use it. Um, yes. And in terms of test it with somebody, I think people get stuck on the case of this is my idea. and We get it all the time. People come to us and say, please sign an NDA to look and help us. What do you think about that? Is it better just to put it out there? In reality, we're all in a we're all in the same place. A lot of people have the same ideas and concepts. So, do you think it's an advantage just to put it out there and tell people what you're up to, or how do you approach that? Yeah, people become very, very protective of their ideas. Mm. Um, but yeah. you know, every idea is derivative. If you've thought yes. of it, somebody else will, and maybe yes. they yeah. already have. Yeah, correct. But mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't sign NDAs. If that's a prerequisite to have a conversation, I don't yeah. bother. The, and the bottom line is, mm -hmm. if if someone wants help or advice or yes. guidance with an idea of theirs, mm -hmm. it's it's their idea. They're the ones that are passionate about correct. it. Even if I thought it was a good idea, I don't have the passion. Mm -hmm. And the passion is what's going to take it to true success, right? Mm -hmm. I could try mm -hmm. and pinch their idea and hire yeah. some some you know development guns off on the yep. side. 
and, and maybe build something similar. But mm-hmm. if I don't really care, if it's not if it's not consuming me, yes, then my chances of beating that guy are basically nil anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, my, my advice to any entrepreneur that wants some some early feedback on their yeah. ideas mm-hmm. is to share them because if they are genuinely passionate about it, if they're not mm-hmm. just trying to to flip something for a buck, yeah. and this is this is their obsession, then they're uh-huh. going to win. Yep. I think the obsession and get a win is very important here because if you are out there looking to build something and it's just for a dollar, generally it's not going to work um, unless you uh, yeah get a little bit lucky along the way or find the right investor and build the right team. Um, if you're not passionate, like you said, and willing to... You're jumping into no man's land in, in some reality here where you're basically looking at a concept, an idea, how are you going to deliver this? You really have to be thinking about this like you said, twenty four seven, it pops things pop into your mind. How are you going to do this? If you're just going to work a nine to five job and attempt to build something and make an impact, especially the level of the Horizon State and Mogul and new technology, it's really never going to happen. Mm. You'll struggle to get investment if yeah. you're just trying to flip something. Yes. They won't see the passion in you, and then yes. what will they put money into you? Well, look, it's surprising what people will invest in. I'm sure you'll find some investors <laughs> who'd love that idea. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But it's also a little bit naive in the sense that, yeah. you know, and, unless this seems just like mm. a slam dunk, mm. if there's any hard work involved in taking this idea to the yep. point it can be flipped and you don't have the people that are passionate actually about yes. it to begin with, then it's always going to be a monument challenge you're pushing yeah. shit up here. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Shit up here, exactly. Are you thinking which idea is going to be a slam dunk isn't necessarily indicative of which one is? Correct. Or yeah. no. it's just your theory too? Yep. I think, um, and you, you touched on it before, it can start at the problem rather than the concept. And I think you mentioned that with the Horizon State. You saw there was more of a problem that you're trying to solve rather than here's a piece of tech we are going to deliver to the market. And I think if you start there, you generally can get buy-in on the problem. And I think this is what this podcast is about. The buy-in on the problem is really about how do we help some non-techs actually build some better technology and get some insights and feedback from people. It's not about making a dollar. We're not making anything off doing this. It's more something passionate about sharing to the community about how to take the right steps to get your concept, your idea, your passion about to market. So... I think if you take a step back and just take the money off the table, is this something you want to be doing long term? You look at how you can monetize it in the future. Or it might not be the first thing you think about. So when you look at a market and you said um, you're looking at strategy, right? In terms of are you approaching it in terms of the biggest problem you want to solve or the people and the people you want to help? Or is it more about where I can get the most bang for buck? What are the big things there? Uh, okay, help. Holistically, uh, f- philosophically, and Steve Jobs uh, said it best. It's it's made ever popular yeah. over the internet. But you, you know, you, you've got to start with the mm-hmm. users and, and work your way yes. back to the technology. Mm-hmm. Technical founders can um, often find themselves tripping up on mm-hmm. having accidentally built something great or discovered a great way to do something. Yeah, um, correct. Or have put together a, a novel arrangement of uh-huh. technologies in a special kind of way. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then they end up trying to find a, a problem that that can solve, which is actually a lot harder, right? But, but if, if, if I think we've had that chat a bit before, so about um, what we're doing in one place, yeah, yeah. it can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so the the benefit, and while yeah. being a, a non technical founder uh-huh. in a digital product sphere is yeah. hugely challenging because mm. there's so much to learn, so much you don't understand, and there's the opportunity to be taken for a run by people mm-hmm. who aren't so nice. Yes. Um, the the benefit of being a non technical founder um, who needs to or wants to build a digital product um, is that they usually do have a good problem to solve yes and now they need to go off and, and think about how it can be solved mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. using technology so they actually are generally 
um, sometimes in a better starting position than the technical founder who just has some great technology and now wants to go and find a find a, a, a problem for that. Right. Mm. Look in terms of in terms of markets. I mean, do you want to quickly re- rephrase the question for me? Is it sort of the same thing moving into those markets? Uh, I'd say so. So it was more about how do we sort of pick, I think you've covered it there, so it's more about starting at the actual users themselves Mm. and the problem itself, rather than just here's some tech we want to build to solve a problem. I think, yeah, from a technical world, you can sort of get lost in that, and I think you've touched upon it really, the answer from a non-tech, there is your advantage. But how do you go about, so from your advantage can Mm. be a massive challenge. So you're you're coming from the other end, so you are a technical guy. Working with non-tech founders, how have you approached it just to probably close the chasm The chasm in terms of what they need to know, how do they need to do it, and what have you done there just to help them on that journey? Uh, look, I think a, a couple a couple things to talk on yeah. there. Um, you mentioned monetization earlier and, mm. and thinking about how you take the, the product from user needs mm. to a place of yes. where it can grow and, be, uh, grow and be commercially viable. And mm. I think with digital product, especially if it's a consumer-facing digital product, mm-hmm. more often than not, um, the, the right approach is to ensure you have the funding to reach a, a critical mass of users and almost not even think too deeply mm-hmm. on exactly how you're going to charge those users or make money off of those users right now. Okay. Uh, with, with enough users, you can always... Almost always, not always. You can, al- you can almost always figure out a way to make money, but you need the users first. Uh, yep. And most mm-hmm. digital products um, struggle with this concept, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to non-technical founders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think non-technical founders who don't necessarily have an existing uh, grasp on the realities uh, in respect to, to building out a large, captive, sticky audience and network effects are in full swing mm-hmm. and reality has taken its hold. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time... You know, there, there might be too early a focus on okay. revenues. Uh, and I, I would just suggest in a lot of the time, you know, it's through uh, extensive repetitive conversations mm-hmm. that chasing, chasing early revenues is important for most early stage business owners because mm-hmm. obviously they've sometimes got investors that expect to make a return. Yes. And their, um, their definition of what success looks like is, is usually monetary based. Even, mm-hmm. though, even though, you know, the pursuit not might not be driven by money mm-hmm. they've found they've got a real problem mm-hmm. and they've got a real solution for it mm-hmm. and it's their passion project but yes. fundamentally it's a business and we live in a capitalist society yeah, right? so to actually turn yeah, into yeah. some profit right goalposts are yeah dollar based not yeah, user based right. mm. now if, if we think about our faces for a moment as a, as a revenue pie mm-hmm. um looking at looking at revenue opportunities too early can basically cut off the nose a little bit of revenue in spite of the rest mm-hmm. of the face, which is the which is the actual opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. It's the it's the larger opportunity, and so um, it's really really important that I think non technical founders make sure that um, they're as comfortable with the idea as possible mm-hmm. that um, there's going to be a period of, of burning cash yes. um, on the path to success when hopefully mm-hmm. you know you turn a few a few important levers mm. and all of a sudden that money you know starts to, to rain. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 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 a tough balance, um, but taking money too early does a few things. One is what I just uh, explained, which is you sort of, you you create a scenario where you've potentially compromised long-term revenue for short-term revenue. Yes. Um, 
And the other thing it does is put a is put a value on your business basically immediately, which is actually not where you want to be um, in a digital product business. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, huge valuations aren't gotten to because you started charging users early and making revenue early. Mm-hmm. Um, huge valuations are assigned because you don't have revenue yet, and people are thinking about what the potential How they can is. actually make yeah. some revenue out of this with uh, a million users, for example. Um, interesting point. So, what would you recommend? I'm a non-tech. Do I bootstrap this thing? Is that a better way to do this, to look for really early stage seeds? If I'm in that world, how have you approached it in the past? There's obviously a juggle there. As soon as you bring on, if it's reasonable cash and investment, you're clearly going to have pushback from investors, how we generate revenue. But that can, like you said, impact Mm -hmm. what you do now for the long term. So you might focus too short term. So what? What it is a tough one to balance, but what have you done in the past? What have you found has worked, and what have you found really hasn't? Look, a, a prototype beats a PowerPoint deck every day yes. of the week if you're mm-hmm. trying to raise capital yeah, okay. or, or do anything really. Pro- uh-huh. Prototype obviously beats a PowerPoint deck in terms yes. of actually getting feedback on mm-hmm. the product and, es- and establishing mm-hmm. an idea of product market fit. Yep. Uh, but I think the, the simplest, most important advice here is, yeah, ideally mm-hmm. bootstrap, um, get something working yes. as fast as you can, even mm-hmm. if it's super crude, because you need to validate that product market fit. Mm-hmm. If you go too far down the path, and you've taken on a lot of money, yes. um, then sometimes you're stuck trying to make things work, which mm-hmm. probably fundamentally shouldn't have um, or won't. Um, okay. and, and, you're, and you're stuck in a very awkward position then where yep. you've continued to raise money without having really gotten it to the point of establishing product market first. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a really tough place for everybody involved in, in that sort of business relationship. It's more to be in. buying into the idea than yeah. the yeah. vision. So sort of. prototype... Get it out to market. Mm-hmm. Try and get some validation, and and if and if if that validation doesn't exist, mm-hmm. um, then it's hard. But you kind of just have to cut your losses. You know, yep. whether you've spent thirty grand or three hundred grand uh-huh. standing up that minimum viable product. Yes. If if there's no response, if if the market is not saying we want this, we're going to use this, mm. then there's. Uh, I mean, a sad reality is that you spend another four or five years uh-huh. um, trying to make something work, which just won't ever. And yes. you could have been. Yep pursuing other great ideas in the meantime uh yeah and i think you've touched on an idea as an idea there are many around and i think if you take the learning from the past experience it'll give you a next a good platform to move forward i think we've talked about this a little bit so jamie was involved in advising us on a, on a product which was fair access at the time um, and i think the learning for us through that journey was we were attempting to find a market for a product the idea was all always perceived to be great um but never really found the right market fit. And we sort of got to that conclusion that, okay, maybe we need to park this, maybe not right timing, or it's not really answering the problems that we assumed it was. So uh, definitely, it's a hard thing to do. You're you're in a position where you've got this concept, you've worked on it for a few years, jumped in, jumped out, looked at different markets, different opportunities. But what I found is as soon as we started trying to find a market for a product, take a step back there's probably an issue here mm. if you're yeah. trying to explore a market and find it we yeah in that scenario yeah. we sort of had feedback prototype yes. worked well the end users loved the idea yes but there was no supplier who would get it to them there's no buyer 
yeah. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes you can make it work. Sometimes yeah. you can define uh-huh. new categories. Sometimes yeah. you, new things yeah. happen, right? Yeah, exactly. But that, that path is infinitely harder. And as it we is. sort of discussed earlier, yeah. if you've got great technology and you're uh-huh. trying to find a problem for it to solve, yes. uh, you know, as I just said, sometimes, sometimes that happens. But more often yeah. than not, yeah. that's that's just the infinitely harder path to track. And then yeah. Yeah, when the blockchain and the, all that bubble came upon, we thought that's the perfect way to do it because we can crowdfund it up. Mm. Yes. But then we're and just too, support too late. that market. But and then the that timing was is wrong. Timing. If we were there a year earlier, that would have been a very different conversation. I think timing. You touched on it today. Um, timing can impact the way you roll yeah. out a market. So, you know, a couple of good points here. Timing, product market fit. I think people need to consider. In terms of, um, I'm a non-tech. I'm about to enter into this world. I could be in a business. I could be a founder of a business. I could be um, a domain name, a domain knowledge expert. Where do I start? What do you perceive to start? Is it generally, I think you touched on it, do I get the information out of my head? Is that maybe where I might start? What would I do? Yeah, I think we've sort of covered off that in in a few ways through the conversation, but the two points really is getting it out of your head, moving as fast as you can towards even some very crude guerrilla sort of usability testing, Mm -hmm. uh, pen on paper stuff. Get get feedback, try to establish Mm -hmm. some, some, perspective on product market fit yeah. early can you validate the idea yeah. uh, these sorts of things are, are critical but in 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 tandem the the theme of timing needs to again be a very conscious deliberate part of that decision making process mm-hmm. um, is is the world ready for it is the technology ready to support the idea is is culture and society ready for it yeah. is 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 That's consumer behavior ready for it and mm-hmm. i'll give yeah. you one really quick example um back in 2007 i was beta testing a product called quick qik um okay. this was a video uh, a video streaming service uh, mm-hmm. similar to, to facebook live similar to meerkat mm-hmm. similar to periscope which yep. is now you know um part of twitter mm-hmm. so these these streaming services the first one of those that went to market in a meaningful way was yes. quick back in 2007. Mm-hmm. i was running i think it was a nokia n95 a symbian series 60 device at the time uh-huh. mm-hmm. i had 3g on that device but most people yep. were still on 2g mm-hmm. so and data was super expensive yeah, at that time. Yeah. Yes, um, and and so the idea yeah. that I would install the Quick app and and live stream video uh-huh. to to the, to the world was actually technologically it was an an, yeah. an, an amazing feat. It would mm-hmm. stream to a web browser and it would be rendered as in in a flash player for somebody on the web or lots of people on the web to yep. to view stream. Yep. But uh, cameras in phones weren't great. <laughs> no. Data was expensive. Data was slow. And so that's that's a, an amazing example of something which has obviously become now very popular. People. Yes. Kind of take it for granted yeah. but even just you know 14 15 years ago that that era the timing was wrong for a great idea yeah mm-hmm. and again re- reiterating mark andreessen's quote all of the all of the ideas from the dot-com mm-hmm. boom and bust would have now worked um so timing and validation okay yep. you need so to you need to establish whether you whether you honestly mm-hmm. and be honest with yourself whether whether <laughs> whether the timing is right from a technology perspective from a yeah. culture perspective uh-huh. um and and then you need to validate that idea uh, with the market i think yeah. you said honest um but honest led by someone that's passionate can be sometimes yeah. a tough juggle Great. there um so who would you reflect and who have you done it in the past do you have the conversation with yourself or do you theory that out with a few people and brainstorm it. how do you approach that because passion can sometimes take you down the wrong path yeah um it's not 
it's it's not going to be a particularly helpful answer. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's okay. But sometimes, sometimes you just need to make your own mistakes. You mm. know, sometimes yeah. you can't learn something without having yeah. failed. Yeah. And and so for me, mm-hmm. it, it it's become part of my personal discipline to think about those things mm-hmm. as objectively and as critically as I can, mm. because I. I I failed in those areas in the yeah. past. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've made those mistakes, um, and so weighing up your passion mm-hmm. versus the honest appraisal of those two key factors, yeah, it's, it can cloud your judgment. Yes, uh, and you'll know soon enough if it has because you'll have failed. <laughs> yeah, it could be as well how much conviction you have mm. for the idea mm. rather than the passion, because then it's can you survive the feedback. Correct. Correct. And, and look, say, you know, I believe this is going to work. doesn't matter what everyone else is telling me yes. and yep. have it succeed, which has happened in the past. Look, yes. and I'm kind of using those terms interchangeably. The conviction yeah. is, a, is a terrific word for, mm-hmm. the, for the point to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the conviction is a prerequisite for success, but the conviction can also cloud your judgment in yep. respect to those two things. Yeah, yep. not very, very okay. good. Now, in touching earlier with the... So you sort of said you have to assemble a great team like the Avengers and get your startup yep. off the ground. Yep. So with your, when you're starting up and you've got some prototyping done and the validations come across and everything's looking good, would you say get a team as quick as possible or is it okay to start with some advisors to help you along the way till you're ready for that team? Um, look, I, I'd say advisors can very often be superficial. Mm-hmm. Um if you can secure some high quality advisors, they can be immensely helpful. Mm. But in my yep. experience, it's quite hit and miss. Uh-huh. Advisors obviously are usually successful people building successful stuff elsewhere. So their time is, is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that is not the right advisors either. So I'm not saying don't try and build out an advisory board to help you, but the value that they can add, well, you know, mileage may vary. Uh, that's that's the <laughs> Yeah, so an line. example we've seen a few times with the non-tech startups is, they engage with a development team. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what the team's telling them. It's going all over their head. And we advise them to get an advisor that's an intermediary that can help them explain what the team's doing massively to help useful. them. The, the, the translation stuff is massively useful yeah. because especially for non-technical founders, mm-hmm. um, you know, bringing on engineers yes. or working with, a, with, a, with an outsourced engineering team, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a language barrier there. There really is. Yeah, and, yeah, and it you feels need like Japanese sometimes. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's the other way around. And, and so, yeah. you know, in a perfect world, that non-technical founder mm-hmm. has a technical founder with them who they trust and, and can uh, rely on to make sure that they become that, that, that conduit uh, for a better understanding. Uh-huh. Where that Where that hasn't happened yet uh, then absolutely you need you need somebody there in an advisory capacity to help yep. you have those conversations um because the the outcomes otherwise are never good they're just no. never good yeah yep. we've seen too many stories go down the wrong path that way yeah yeah that's the whole point of why we're doing this it's just to keep people on track to things to consider and we've mentioned quite a number of them today so i think um Jamie, we might wrap it up there i think that's been a really good chat looking at how startup the startup world has treated you, uh, how you've taken ideas and concepts and delivered them, and now what you're doing with mobile and, and in terms of um, building that team and capability and trying to deliver out some new tech again there. So commend you for putting yourself out there and trying to impact the markets in different ways. So yeah, congrats on that. And hopefully that journey works uh, well for you. In terms of um, yourself, how do people find out about you and um, touch base if they're uh, interested in reaching out? I'm on I'm on Twitter all yep. the time. I'm Twitter, Twitter's yep. so, uh, <laughs> just just at me. Um, yep. It's at Jamie Skeller. Yeah, uh, S K E L L A. Yeah, happy to have a yarn on yep. 
on Twitter or catch up for a coffee or a beer at, at my esports bar. Yes. I thought I'd throw that plug in right at the e-sports end. Yeah, throw bar. that in. Nice. <laughs> Where's that located? 90, 93 Queen Street. No, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's Australia's first esports Aaron bar. Aaron so. in the office, the guy in the office has visited it a few times. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> As he is at the one. Yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> no, nice work. No, thanks cool. again, Jamie. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that. Cheers, mate.